Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principal. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purposes only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to TVP. This week, we are thrilled to have Marin Somerset Webb on the pod. You'll know her as a columnist for Bloomberg and as a host of their podcast, Marin Talks Money. Previous to Bloomberg, she was the editor-in-chief at Money Week following brokerage stints at SBC Warburg in Tokyo and BNP Paribas in London. She's also the best-selling author of two books on personal investing. She has some free time to speak with us this week, and Sean Pest has returned to co-host with Juan. They sat down to discuss with Marin thoughts on value investing of the last decade, the awakening of nuclear energy, and the backstage politics around that industry in the UK, low fees and the debate of passive versus active, thoughts on pension lifestyling and its risks, and finally, what would Marin do if she was in charge of the London Stock Exchange and the Treasury? Enjoy. Marin Somerset Webb, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Where do we find you today? I'm in Edinburgh. I have to say that it's a pleasure to finally be able to do the recording, given that we had to cancel last week due to unforeseen circumstances. And we had also the pleasure, Sean and myself, of playing hide and seek with you for about two hours in the city of London. So it's a pleasure to have you here. We weren't actually playing hide and seek. I'd make, like to make that absolutely clear to your listeners. It was just, I did what we were doing. We were relying on emails. It's so old fashioned, isn't it? We didn't have each other's telephone numbers and we were relying on emails to find each other. This doesn't work anymore. That's very true. Marin, for those in our audience that might have never heard of you, and we don't think that there are that many, but for those that don't know who you are, could you please give us with a little bit of your background, your journey? My journey, gosh. Um, well, I was the founding editor of a magazine called Money Week, which is uh, uh, still, I think, the UK's best-selling financial magazine. 
And I had a column in the FT also talking about everything to do with personal finance, investing, et cetera, for 17 years or so. So Money Week is now 22, 23 years old. Um, but I'm now at Bloomberg. I'm an opinion columnist there and also have a podcast, a competitor of yours, I'm afraid, the Merrin Talks Money a podcast in which we talk about investing, we talk about personal finance, anything to do with money. So I've got a very long history of talking about and writing about investing and money. And I started my career as a stockbroker. So I also have some experience of actually fiddling around with money, other people's money, obviously. How, how long have you been hosting the podcast? This podcast is only a year old. So uh, Mary Talks Money started, well, a little bit, hang on, last December, December 2022, December before last we started. So we're going about a year. We've had some fantastic guests on, everybody from you know, Howard Marks, Jeremy Grantham, and uh, fund managers who not so many people have heard of, but who are fascinating. So um, yeah, it's it's a really wonderful thing to be able to do, as, uh, as I'm sure you find as well, being able to ask people who you find interesting to just come on and chat with you for 40 minutes and uh, try and find some kind of takeaway for the ordinary investor. Um, great fun. Absolutely love it. And I'm joined today, co-hosting this episode is Sean Pesh. Sean, can you please introduce yourself for those that might not know who you are, although you've been on this podcast as a guest and then also as a co-host. Thanks, Juan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And Meryn, lovely to, to speak to you again. Um, so I'm a fund manager and I run a global value fund. It's called the Ranmore Global Equity Fund, based out in here over here in the UK. And, and clearly, I've been a big fan of Mirren's podcasts for, for since they started, really. Uh, normally, listen to them straight away on a Friday, and they always bring a wry smile to, to my face, the intro with her and John, and then some fascinating guests. But Mirren, I thought I'd ask the, the AI search engines if there was anything I didn't know about you, and I'm sure there's lots, but about your investment philosophy, and they, they mentioned that you're a value investor. And uh, But it's been a tough time for us value investors in the period of QE. And I was rather hopeful that, that when QE ended, you know, things would change. But what are your thoughts about that, Marin? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is I'm, I'm fascinated by being labeled as a value investor. I want you to tell me what else I've been labeled as later. The first thing to say about that is that, is that I'm always very, very mildly irritated by the division between value and growth investing, because for all investors investing is value investing because everybody must believe that they have found some kind of value that other people can't. Nobody buys something and goes, well, this is insanely expensive and I can't imagine what I'm going to get out of it, but I'm going to buy it anyway. Oh, as you know, maybe they do. Passive investors possibly do do that. But most active investors, whether they call themselves growth or quality or value, whatever, they are explicitly looking for a type of value, right? So everybody is a value investor in, in that sense. And what we're talking about, you and I, I think when you talk about value investing, you're talking about stuff that is um, ostensibly cheap, but looks like it might have a catalyst to drive it up the same kind of valuation levels as everybody else, right? Now, the thing about that style of investing, and you're right, I do have a bias towards it, is that it should be easier than other types of investing, because you can see where there is value. You can see it in the numbers. So you know, we might come on to talking about Japan later, but if you look at, for example, Japan, you could have seen uh, year after year after year after year, you know, over 50% of the, of the listed companies having a price of book of, of under one. You could have seen those incredibly low PEs, the cash building on the balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. You could look at that and you can say, one day, one day that's going to go and I can wait. So you can only... Uh, from my experience so far, and probably yours as well, be a successful value investor 
if you have the time to wait, which is why I always think that it's the best possible style and the easier style of investing uh, for the retail investor, which of course is my bias. I'm always thinking, what can the man in the street do? What can the retail investor do? What can we do to have won over the institutional investor? And the one thing that the retail investor has that the institutional investor trying to hang on to their job does not have is time. So we can pick a cheap market and we can wait. So I hope that lots of our listeners, um, you know, my work colleague, John Stepek, who does some of the podcasts with me and is also at Bloomberg with me, we've been telling our readers, I mean, for years, years to, to buy Japan, to be in Japan, to wait. And I hope they did because that value has now started to come good. So you can see it and then you can wait. And of course, the other place where you can do that now is the UK, which just screams to me of the same kind of value that John and I saw in Japan actually you know, years and years ago. And you now have this same dynamic in the UK. You look at it, it's incredibly cheap. No one will buy it. Everyone sees endless problems and reasons not to buy. If you sit and you wait and you know you've got value, you'll get there in the end. That was a very long answer to what was a very simple question. I'm sorry, Sean. No, but Merrin, you make an excellent point that that, um, that the, the individual investor doesn't have to worry about reporting to clients every month, comparing them, their performance to the benchmark. The problem is, I guess, is that you've got to, you, you can't worry about the fear of missing out. You can't worry about FOMO. So you must wait and then not, uh, not succumb to FOMO. And it's, it's tough when everybody else is having a party with the tech stocks and you sitting in your Japanese UK, UK stocks. And I guess that's the, the challenge. But you're absolutely right. It's the key competitive advantage that retail investors have. Yeah, Marine. and you're right. But FOMO is very difficult, and it is one of those things. You know, we always uh, try and tell our, our readers, listeners, just not to spend too much time looking at this stuff. Yeah. And of course, if you have deep FOMO, you want to do a bit of both at the same time. You can do that. Like you know, about having cryptocurrency FOMO. Everyone can have uh, half a percent in Bitcoin just in case, because you never know. I mean, we do. John and I, you know, yeah. we talk all the time on our podcast about how, how ridiculous it is and it's a Ponzi scheme and it's a fraud and it's a scam, et cetera. And then I will tell people that, you know, I've got some because you never know. <laughs> could be wrong. Always could be wrong. Actually, the, the talk about FOMO leads me to our next question. We recently had Bloomberg on our show, on the podcast. And he was making the point that the West is finally having an awakening around nuclear energy. And we saw that you picked up the topic very recently in a very good column at Bloomberg, where you summarized the whole situation very well. And we would like to hear your thoughts about, well, nuclear in general, and the mm -hmm. politics around what might delay or accelerate its resurgence in the UK, but also in Europe as a whole. And I make the reference to FOMO, given that the uranium price is going up, like uh, it's been going up a lot, and a lot of people are just starting to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, well, we are at bandwagon jumping on time. You know, the price of uranium has gone up, what, 90 plus percent in the last year or so. It's at a 15, 16 year high, and everyone's now looking at uranium going, gosh, I wish I'd been in that last year. But again, it's one of those things where you think, well, this is probably going to run and run. It's got all the usual supply demand problems that you get with pretty much everything you have to dig out of the ground one way or another. There's lots of uranium around, by the way. And one of the things that I did not know that I found when I was writing this column is that uh, you can get uranium out of seawater relatively easy. easily. It's just really expensive. So you know, there'll be a, a cap on this price uh, once you get to a level where you can extract this stuff from seawater and, and use it. But 
it is one of the most price inelastic things there is out there for the very simple reason that you just can't just turn off a nuclear power plant. Uh, you can't just snap this stuff off and snap it back on again, uh, partly because um, of the regulatory stuff. So if you restart, I spoke to several people around this, you restart it, you want to do all the safety checks again, you've got to do all the regulatory approvals again, it can take months, it can take years. And of course, the cost of uranium is is overall a small part of the cost of creating nuclear energy. So it's incredibly price insensitive. So that's one of the, the first things to, to understand about this market. What will hold it back? Cost long-termism, uh, or short-termism, should I say, is very difficult for politicians to sit down and say, okay, we've got this energy mix wrong, and we really need to talk about it again, and we need to spend a vast amount of money up front building nuclear plants. And even if we get to doing the, um, the, the small modular units that we've been talking about, you still need a lot of money up front, a lot of thinking, and, uh, well, a lot of good policy. I did a podcast the other day with um, the ex-chancellor, ex-short-term chancellor, I know, Kwasi Kwarteng, and we were talking about... Uh, what it might be that the likes of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt could do now in that they haven't got much time left. We're all pretty certain they're not going to win the, the next election. So they have this small, rather amazing opportunity to do something long-term, difficult, and unpopular. And this is exactly the kind of thing that they can do. I'm not sure it'd be entirely unpopular uh, with, with, the, uh, with the population, but it might be unpopular with, with other politicians and with whoever is holding the purse strings longer term. But I think it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that it would be great to see happen. Now, the thing that people don't think about when they think about nuclear energy and the thing that we need to think about more than anything when we're talking about net zero, when we're talking about transitions, is the national grid, uh, which is... I wrote a column about this a couple of years ago, not even a couple of years ago, a couple of months ago, saying that the national grid, or rather the global electricity grid, is the largest thing that humankind has ever built. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's, um, now I can't remember the numbers, let me think, uh, something like 55, 56 million miles long. So you can, you can go around the globe, if you were to, to put the grid around the globe, you could go around uh, 2,000 times plus, uh, from what I remember. It's absolutely enormous, but it's not big enough not anywhere near big enough if we want to go to a world where we're using more electricity than made from uh, nuclear and renewable than we want to use fossil fuels. So that is the big barrier to every single part of the transition. You have to pretty much rebuild this grid uh, from the ground up. You have to make it massive. You have to put a pylon in pretty much everyone's back garden. And then you move into an environment where everyone goes, well, do you know what? I kind of prefer diesel. So there are there's there's those huge logistical and practical barriers to any huge rise in the electrification of the way that we use energy, which is not just about nuclear energy, but about all the renewable energies as well. And that that's I would say probably the biggest the biggest barrier, even beyond the political and the financial barriers. There has been a lot of articles and I'm going to say a little bit of a negative press around wind recently, and I know that you have some strong views about wind. Do you think that? Do you think that that narrative is finally changing? Yes, I do. I mean, I think that if it had been possible by now to have the battery technology that I think people had hoped for some time ago, such that you could store every kind of renewable energy and it wasn't erratic, that would be a different matter. But we haven't got that. So what we do have with wind in particular and solar is these incredibly erratic forms of energy. They, they come and they go, we can't control them. And that's incredibly difficult for the grid in itself, which was built initially for, set up initially, all grids around the world were set up initially for 
types of energy that are very stable and straightforward and just keep coming in in a very predictable way. If you don't have that, you need to reduce backup power, right? And if you have to reduce backup power that can power the grid all the time anyway, then what are you doing with the renewable stuff? So you can find, if you can find a type of energy, nuclear being the obvious answer that is both renewable and consistent and straightforward and controllable, why would you not take that instead? Yeah, well, we, we, we can't agree more with you on that. I'm going to change tax here a little bit. Um, the pension industry in the UK has caught your attention for a very long time, and there are very a lot of challenges. But I saw recently a piece on the FT by one of your colleagues on the risk of life. Sorry? Ex-colleagues. Ex-colleagues, yeah, sorry, ex-colleagues. Uh, on the risk of lifestyling, and I think that that's something that you have mentioned in the past. And we all know that default options are very dangerous, but I also kind of understand why they have been put in place. So mm. I wanted to ask you, well, number one, if you could define lifestyling for our audience. Yeah. And what would you say is the, the shape of the industry at the moment, its main challenges, and what needs to be done to address whatever weaknesses are in the system? Okay. The first thing I want to say on pensions is that the UK pension system is in many respect, respects absolutely fantastic. It's fantastic. It's really well designed and it has the potential to work absolutely brilliantly. We also have, relative to most other countries, a phenomenally high level of pension savings relative to our GDP. So well over 100% of GDP in pension funds around the UK. And if you look at some other countries, even in, in the West and in Europe, that can go down to, to 20%, well under 10%. So in some ways, we're very well set. And then onto the way that it's structured, auto-enrollment is amazing. So everyone in work, everyone in work, not everyone, but everyone above a very low level has a pension set up for them, has contributions from their employers and is a holder of global assets, be they equities or bonds. So there is almost no one in work in the UK now that does not have a pension that is set up to join together with their state pension when they retire that will give them a reasonable income, not a great income, but a reasonable income. And this is fantastic. And it's set up such that those contributions can be increased over time and that uh, you know our pension system can be can be constantly improved. So uh, before I start complaining about the pension system, I want to say that at its base, this is an excellent system, one of the best in the world, and we should be we should be proud of the way we've set it up and the way that it's going to provide for people's futures. But but the problem is that most people don't understand their pension, they don't know how it works, and they don't know what's in it. And we do a lousy job, a really lousy job of educating people about this. We don't tell them when they when they start work. We don't give them a 15-minute just-in-time video that tells them what a pension is, explains to them it's a wrapper with fascinating assets inside them, uh, explains to them that inside that wrapper they hold a share of all the greatest companies in the world and some of the lousy companies in the world too and how that works. This is really important. We should do that. So that's bad. The second thing that is bad, as you say, is that thanks in part to this lack of education and refusal to force people to engage with their pensions, we provide them with a default. Hello, welcome to your workplace. You have a pension. It's a default fund. You don't have to do anything. We're all done here. Goodbye. And that means that most people simply do exactly that. Sign on the dotted line and they end up in one default fund. Now, lots of those funds have been running a while and they're set up to do exactly what you've just talked about, 
lifestyling so that as you move towards your retirement age, they de-risk or they think they de-risk. So they move out of what we consider to be risky assets, <clears throat> equities, shares in these wonderful and some terrible companies, and into the bond market instead, because the bond market is first too much safer. And if you're in, for example, gilts, then uh, you, know, you can't possibly lose your money. And gradually, as you move towards your retirement age, you move out of equities and into bonds. Now, in the old days, that was a jolly good idea. Because everybody, when they hit their retirement age, almost everybody, not everybody, almost everybody uh, was forced by various types of legislation to buy an annuity with their money. So the safer you were towards the end of your working career with your pension funds, then uh, the better your annuity would be. You, you, you don't take that risk of losing a big pile of money towards the end. Until, of course, you do. You do, because what have we seen over the last couple of years? Ructions all over the place in the bond market, huge volatility. And some people have looked at their pension funds and suddenly found that as they're approaching their retirement age, they've lost 30% of their money because they have been lifestyled into a guilt fund at exactly the wrong time. Now, it doesn't work partly because of that reason, because it de-risks you into stuff that is possibly more risky at, at some particular points, but also because you no longer have to buy an annuity. So you don't really want to de-risk. You need that money to keep growing and keep producing an income all the way through your retirement, which means really you probably want to be much more in the equity market than you would have in the past. And there are lots of ways, if you're coming into retirement, to make your time in the equity market reasonably safe. It doesn't have to be a high-risk activity, particularly over a 30-year period. And that's particularly the case, of course, in the UK market, which is a relatively high dividend market. And it used to be, who was it? It was a Mark Dampier at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who always used to talk about the UK equity market as nature's annuity. Well, you know that you're probably going to uh, control, you can control, and you probably will maintain the value of your capital over time. Maybe you won't grow massively, but you'll maintain the value and you'll receive a reasonable dividend over time as well. So it's almost like an annuity, obviously with a bit more risk, but it still has that vague feeling about it. And you do now as well. Stop me when I'm rabbiting away and you just want me to shut up. Just wave at me, I'll stop. Um, you have a, a really interesting movement in the UK investment trust industry, where it used to be that you couldn't pay, or you, in the main, couldn't pay dividends to your shareholders out of your capital. You could only pay out in dividends what came in in dividends. Now, that has changed, and there are now a reasonable amount of investment trusts, and I, I will write about this at some point, a reasonable amount of investment trusts that guarantee guarantee a yield, be it paid out of income or out of capital. And you look at that and you say, well, this is perfect, because what was an annuity or is an annuity? It's the running down of your capital to be paid out as income over time. But in taking that annuity, you lose full control of your capital. And what about an option where you remain reasonably heavily invested in the equity market, but the fund in which you are invested guarantees to repay you a part of your capital every year, such that you effectively have a type of annuity, but control of your capital. So my point, ramble, ramble, is that there are, there are different options and different priorities for people retiring now and coming up to retirement now, and the pension funds haven't necessarily taken advantage, not taken advantage, haven't necessarily showed people those options and how they should do it. I did say on a, on a podcast, on our own podcast the other day, that a quick fix for people, quick fix, would be to go to their pension website, which anyone can, look up what they can, and change their forecast retirement date. Because you're asked your retirement date when you, uh, when, you, when you start, and most people will say, you know, 55 or 65 or something. Um, you can change it to 75. 
And I thought that would be incredibly effective. Mm. Somebody did email me and say that they had tried to do that and found that however late they made their retirement date, their lifestyle would still start at 55. So, you know, it's not foolproof, but uh, an interesting place to start. I, I don't disagree with anything of what you have said. I guess people would, would could have argued that the, the, the lifestyling, the default option going to guilds was actually a very conservative option where you are de-risking the, the future by taking away equities into, into a very safe fixed income. So people could also point out that if there is a downturn on the equity market at the wrong time, when you are in that specific period, which is very important for you, then you are also going to be impaired. Yeah, I suppose the point is that it depends how much time you have to get the money back, right? And if you're in a bond fund, which where the the um, uh, managers are likely to trade in and out, right? They're not going to hold those bonds to maturity. So it's not like you can say, well, I'm just going to hang on to that until it comes good. That's not how it works inside a bond fund, right? Yeah. So maybe there's also a case, it could also be a case for saying, right, well, maybe if you have control of your assets come uh, 55, 65, whenever it is, you hold a certain amount in the equity market and then you hold some individual gilts yourself based on the timeline that takes you to the periods that you want to get that capital back. That's a pretty fool, foolproof method. I suppose the, the, the point is that there's a, there's a lot of thinking to be done here and everything has to be done on a fairly individual basis. And some people, by the way, may actually want to buy annuities. There is nothing wrong with buying an annuity at all, particularly now that uh, rates are slightly better than they used to be. It's just that in the main, if you've been given this freedom to hang on to your capital, it's not a bad thing to try and do that. Yeah. Marin, that makes total sense. And in fact, recently, a few months ago, I switched my workplace pension because when I first started, you didn't have too much flexibility into my SIP so that I could yeah. invest in my funds. So, so things are moving in the right direction. And I guess that highlights, you know, you've been an amazing consumer advocate over a long time. And it's, I guess, the reason you've built up um, such a huge fan base, but also focused investors' minds on low fees. Now, that has driven a lot of people, that together with the fact that most active managers underperform their benchmarks, to passives. And how are you yeah. feeling about that now with passives having more than 50% of the, of the assets generally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is valid under only a self to blame, doesn't it? In that having gone on and on and on about fees and the importance of fees for, for decades, I now can't really complain that people are migrating towards low fee products. And what I should say is that the rise of passive has been a wonderful thing in lots of ways. It's democratized investment. It's bought in very low cost investments and it's done very, very well for people. You know, if you've been in a, in a, a ETF in the US for the last however many years, you've done extremely well. There's little to criticize here. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that I worry about, um, uh, passive investors not really quite understanding what, what they're doing, because of course, if you're a passive investor, you're also a momentum investor because that's what you're doing. You're, you're just buying more of stuff that's going up, right? So I worry about that a little bit. But I worry in particular, because you know we really, really need active fund managers in the equity market. The equity market is, is in itself incredibly important for reasons that I've discussed many times in, in, um, in my columns. It's important uh, for transparency. It's important for wealth equity. Uh, it's important for democracy. Very important that we have a healthy equity market. But if you look at the participants in that market, you know who, who buys IPOs? Who are the people who buy stocks when they first come to the market? That's the active fund managers. Who's really interested in, in companies 
plans going forward. So there's secondary fundraisings. Who's going to buy into that? That's the active fund managers. That's not passive. Who's uh, so? It's really important to the dynamics of the equity market that you have active as well as passive. And we and the rise and rise and rise of passive it does push out active. If there are fewer active managers than there used to be. It's much harder to start a new active management firm than it used to be. So the power balance is beginning to change. And I will admit to finding that slightly uncomfortable. Where did you say we are now? We're about 40% passive globally, right? And much higher in some of the developed markets. Yeah, I think in the US it's over 50%. And Merrin, does that give rise to, I mean, not an, I think not a lot of emphasis, not enough emphasis given to active share but there's that concept of active fee. How much are you paying for the active share? Yes. And yes. you know, what do you think about that? Do you think we should provide or give more emphasis to that as active managers? Yes, definitely. Where, where, where does the extra cost go? And I also think that it's it's. You mentioned earlier that passive tends to outperform active, and those active funds underperform. Right? There's a really interesting report a couple of years ago that I must dig out and try and get its author to, to update, uh, which looked at active funds but removed removed funds that called themselves active but had a relatively low active share. And I can't remember where he drew the line, so I'm, I'm not going to make it up because that would be unfair. But once he'd taken out the closet trackers, effectively, yeah. the remaining active funds did outperform. Now, that's really important. That's really yeah. important. That's telling you something very important, that the average properly active fund manager does add value. And if you then compare that value creation with the price, then you're looking at a slightly different conversation than you would be having if you were looking across the supposedly active market, which we know is not entirely active. Do you think that markets, do you think that markets, given the drive of passive, have become less efficient than people think? Do you know, I, it's tempting to think that I haven't got I haven't got the evidence for it. But yes, it is true that if you have a very large percentage of the market simply investing in things that are in a particular index in a market cap weighted way, it would seem obvious that the market would become less efficient. And that the things that are at the very top will just go up and up and up and up and up and so, until something terrible happens. And it's possible that part of the Magnificent Seven or Mega Cap Eight, or whatever you like to call them, in the US, part of this phenomenal share price success is related to the momentum of passive investing and that that is not efficient. Not a given, can't tell you that for sure, but it certainly feels a little like that, doesn't it? And then when you look when you look around, that should, should, Sean, should theoretically create wonderful opportunities for the value investor prepared to wait. And even if you look at the US, you know, if you take out those huge tech stocks, the US doesn't look nearly as expensive as you might think. So if you're going to invest in the US and you had even the Vegas of value tilts and he went for a um, equal weighted rather than a rather than a, um, a capitalization-weighted ETF, you may find yourself in a rather better position long-term. I don't know. What do you think about that, Sean? Yeah, I think, look, I think that's a very good point, Mirren. And I think the, you know, your point about um, being a passive investor is actually a momentum investor is very, is very apt. And I, I think if you look at Japan, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because you spent some time living in Japan. Mm. Um, today, that's only 6% of the world index. And yet active managers and activists are having real success in Japan in unlocking the value. And so now 
you know, passive investors in a, a passive world index fund has only got 6% exposure to one of the markets that's um, probably the most exciting in terms of opportunities right now. You know, what exactly do you think right. about- They're in the expensive market, not the cheap market. And that means I'm they're in the market that has little, little scope to go higher and not in the market that is doing phenomenally well and looks like it will continue to, to do so. Well, I mean, just to give you an example, on Friday when Meta came out with their great results and shot up 20%, there was a little Japanese company, Nippon TV, that went up 22% because they've announced some value-unlocking plans. But are you still excited about Japan, Marin, and the prospects from here? Yes, absolutely. I'm excited about it on on valuation basis. And I mentioned that earlier. You know, it doesn't again, it doesn't matter which valuation method you use. Japan still looks cheap even after that rather good run. It's got a very long, long way to go. And I'm uh, I'm still pleased by all the corporate governance reforms. You know, there is going to be a lot going on there in terms of the unlocking and value. Um and but most importantly of all, probably is the fact that it is now getting some global attention. I mean, Warwick Buffett again has done us all a favor, right? By turning up there and um, announcing that there is value, buying some stuff, and talking about it. And that's enough to make people around the world go, "Hang on a take." You know, the uh, investors they do they say, don't they? Uh, what would Warren do? Well, we know what Warren's doing is buying Japan, right? Do you think, so Warren, I think, do you think Warren's booking great is... impetus? People are always saying, "What's the catalyst? What's the catalyst?" Well, I don't know what the catalyst is. The catalyst is Warren Buffett. And sometimes you've got to act before the catalyst because once there's a catalyst, you know, the lottery tickets, winners of the lottery ticket have already been announced. Do you think Warren's planning a trip to China, Mirren? Oh, you in China? I would doubt it, actually. I would say that his sort of corporate governance overlay might not necessarily allow him to do that. But I, I understand the question. China does on, on many, many levels look incredibly cheap and value investors should be turning to look at it and saying, well, is this a place for us? But, but... Is it really a place where you want to suggest that, for example, my listeners and readers would allocate long-term capital to, or is it the kind of dynamic where you might say to them, "This is for this is for your high the high risk part of your portfolio, and maybe it's a cyclical buy." I'm asking you that, Sean. <laughs> we'll have to see. I mean, the risks have changed. The companies are trading on thirty times earnings, uh, and now they're on seven. And nobody was worried about the risks when there were thirty times earnings, and now everybody's worried about the risks I at was. seven. You were, you were. And of course, no one's worrying about the regulatory risks with all the magnificent seven right now. Um, I but am. yeah, good. <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> Are we talking to you, Marin? <laughs> so I do get your point, you know, but as, um, as uh, John Stepek, uh, my work colleague I mentioned before, as he will always say, every time I start muttering about China and saying, oh, that looks very cheap, that looks very cheap, he looks at me and he says, Marin, remember Russia. And anyone who listens to our podcast will know that he says that quite often because it's one thing he can hold over my head at any time. He holds over my head an article I wrote in the FT some years back saying, this is ridiculously cheap. It's so cheap that it discounts a return to communism and war. You should buy this. And here we are. And here we are. So that hangs over my head as a firm warning when I say to people, this price discounts almost anything because sometimes those things, they they happen. But, but we have the perfect pushback for him and is that we live in a probabilistic world, not a deterministic world. And there were very, uh, there were many different scenarios where the war wouldn't have happened. And I think that the same applies to China. I think that you need to play the probabilities and to Sean's point, the market is 
in a state of panic. Everyone is launching emerging market funds ex China. Mm-hmm. People don't want to go into China. That's what creates the opportunity. That that sort of uncertainty is what will create the opportunity. And I'm hearing you, and logically and theoretically, I agree with you. But imagine the risks I'm taking of having John Stepick holding one more thing over my head. You know, I'm hoping to do this podcast <laughs> for years. And if he's able to say every couple of podcasts, oh, Marion, you're not counting that risk in for me. But I agree with you. And you're right. Of course you're right. Of course you're right. Um, but as I say, I would. Is it something that you would recommend somebody to do for the very long term? Would you say to them, this is a place where you should always have a long-term allocation for your assets, Mr. Retail Investor, trying to manage your pension? Or is it something where you should take advantage of that value over the shorter or medium term? I guess the other thing is, uh, whether you decide to go into China or not, it needs to be part of your portfolio. Your portfolio should be diversified. And if there's a place in the world that is looking extremely cheap, that doesn't mean that you're not going to lose money. It just Mm -hmm. means that there are you are stacking the odds in your favor that you will have a good positive result. And if you are well diversified, then even if that doesn't go well, the rest of your portfolio should mitigate you from from a, a very negative outcome. Fair enough. Yes. John, listen to this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Mirren, okay. You know, just given what you've been saying about stamp duty recently, I thought there was an excellent article. Um, you know, what you've been saying about the the pension fund industry. I mean, if you were running the London Stock Exchange and the Treasury, what what would you do to inject optimism into the UK market? Because as I mean, we've touched on China, we've touched on Japan, and as you rightly say, there are many UK companies that are also incredibly cheap, and investors are not are not taking advantage. And what would you do to make them encourage them to take advantage? Well, I do think that you know, everyone mutters about regulation. There's too much regulation, et cetera. But you know, there is. There is. Anyone who ever reads a company report looks at that and goes, oh, for God's sake, I get past page two. There's another 400 to go. I can't stand it. You know, now think of the people who had to sit down and create that thing. It's exhausting. So there's there's lots of lots of regulation that needs to be looked at again. Uh, everyone says that. So, you know, it's not exactly a, an interesting opinion. And of course, it's incredibly difficult to do because taking away a regulation of any kind always has the people doing it going, well, if we take away this regulation and something goes wrong, we're culpable and that's terrible. So we can't do it. Let's add another one instead to keep everybody safe. So you want to be very careful around this stuff. But the thing that I wrote that column about removing stamp duty, I think that is incredibly important. People don't think about it very much because like many taxes, it's not a tax that they see. But 0.5% on every transaction in the UK market, that is huge. One of the highest in the world. I think Ireland is the only place that has higher, and that's 1%, which is just completely bonkers. And they are talking about that now. But lots of countries have no stamp duty at all. That friction in the transactions simply doesn't exist. Now, when I wrote that column, I thought, well, Marin, this is not something that many, many people are interested in, and it probably doesn't affect the way many people invest. But my inbox after that was absolutely jammed with people saying that this is one of the key reasons why they don't invest in the UK via the UK market. Of course, there are other ways to do it, but this is why they don't do it via the UK market. We add that friction in, it makes a big difference to liquidity, or it looks like it makes a big difference to liquidity. And then you get yourself in a vicious circle, right? Because low liquidity is one reason why people don't want to invest. Because when they look at their risk register, a lot of it is about, well, if I get in, how long does it take me to get out? How long does it take me to trade my way in and out of these stocks? And if if liquidity is low and that's a long time, then they're not going to do it because their risk register won't allow them to. So that's a problem. I would do that. I would also uh, look at things such as 
reducing corporation tax in the first few years of listing, reducing corporation tax on smaller companies further, reducing dividend tax on smaller companies going forward, possibly even looking at reducing the dividend rate that Gordon Brown put in place, where it used to be that it was assumed that if you got a dividend, corporation tax had already been paid, so you got a 20% uh, credit. And he removed that on the basis which no one would notice, which they didn't until it practically destroyed the, uh, the way that pension funds invest in the UK. So there are, I think, a lot of things that you can do that send a signal to the market and to the, the world outside our own market that this is a reasonable place to invest, that we're thinking about it, that we know what we're doing. And stamp duty, I think, would be a great start there. Because this, this market, we talked about catalysts earlier and said that the retail investor doesn't have to wait for a catalyst. You can buy and you can wait. God, it's boring, right? It would be quite useful if there was a catalyst and saying, do you know what? We recognize that there's too much friction in our market, be it regulatory friction or be it tax friction. We recognize that. We're going to take it away, make it easier to invest here, remove some of these barriers. And that would be a great signal. And if you have cheap and you get a signal, you could easily fly. I'd vote for that, Smirin. We are coming to an end of our session, and I, I'm very conscious of time. So I have two very, well, I hope, short questions for you. Number one is this podcast has been around for five years, studying or exploring the topic of decision-making under uncertainty, and you've been covering human behavior for a very long time in financial markets. Mm -hmm. From your experience, what would you say is the most dangerous human bias clouding investors' judgment today? Right now, the assumption that we will go back to what most people in the market consider to be normal, i.e. very low interest rates. There is, remains an assumption among almost everybody I talk to that interest rates are on their way back to 2% or below, and that's just the way it is. That's the aim. But I don't think that is the case. A, I don't think that inflation is, is gone. We may move into a very low inflationary environment, probably potentially a slightly deflationary environment briefly, but I don't think that it is true that inflation has gone away. And I also don't think that it is true that the central banks are super keen to get rates back down to that level. Everybody wants to, to normalize. And when central banks think of normalizing, they're not thinking of normalizing in a post-GFC way. They're thinking of normalizing in a 5,000 years of history kind of way, which is more 4% than 2%. And that is absolutely right, because obviously, well, not obviously, but I believe and many other people believe that these very low interest rates have done terrible things to our economies and to our markets, and that the sooner we normalize to 5,000-year norms, the better. So I think that's a bias that certainly um, even older people, but mostly younger people have, because they can't imagine a world in which 4% is normal. And why should they? Because they've never lived in that normal, in that world, in that normal. But it is normal. And I think that's where we're going back to longer term, and that the sooner the market recognizes that and stops, stops thinking that we're going back down to two, the better. Another no. rambly answer for you. Sorry. No, we we totally agree with you. And final, our final question, we always ask our guests if they can provide us with a book recommendation. We know that you are the author of two books. You can recommend one, one of your books or whatever you are reading or has picked up your interest. We would be very keen to learn about that. Okay, thank you. Now, let's see. Well, my latest book is Share Paris, about Shareholder Democracy, which I think is incredibly important. So obviously, everybody must read that. Um other books, um, Material World by Ed Conway. If anyone hasn't read that yet, they must read it. It's absolutely 
fascinating and a good reminder that all of the stuff that keeps our show on the road comes out the ground and is absolutely filthy. Uh, the Price of Time, <laughs> Edward Chancellor, is fantastic. He's been on my podcast and he's just so good on the history of interest rates, why they matter, and as discussed previously, what our very low interest environment has done to us. On that theme as well, uh, Bernard Connolly's new book, which is vast, and uh, I'm not sure everyone will get all the way through. See, I've got it here. Let me read you the title. Yes, that's what I thought it was. You Always Hurt the One You Love, Central Banks and the Murder of Capitalism by Bernard Connolly. I strongly recommend his work. Th those all sound fantastic. Mm. Uh, last one, last one, last one, because this is my Bible. And I'm letting myself down by telling you about my Bible because now you can all go and get it and read it. And I, and I, won't, I won't be special anymore, but it's so good. I got to tell you. Um, and it sounds boring, but trust me, it's not. The Stock Market by John Littlewood. And it's basically the best history of the UK stock market you could possibly ever read. It doesn't quite go up to the modern day, I'm afraid, but God, it's good. And if you happen to be an opinion journalist, you quite often wrote about markets, you can open it on any page, any page, and find a starting point. That's a fantastic list. I think that Sean wanted to ask you just one tiny little bit question about turning the tables. You think nothing of my puppy, do you, Sean? <laughs> turning the tables. Bitcoin, gold. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, well, Marin gave us, she gave it away earlier when she said she had a little bit of Bitcoin with no China. I was a bit concerned about that. But uh, but Marin, but Bitcoin or China or money market? given that you've touched on most of the, or, or um, gold, sorry. What's my time frame? Well, I mean, whatever you want. No, no, you can't do it without Long. a time frame. Because uh, if, right. if, if it was two years, I might go China. If it was, um, if it was uh, uh, 10 years, I'd probably go gold. Um, I probably wouldn't go money market over, over anything other than a very short period. And um, Bitcoin, if I had to choose... It would never be Bitcoin. Okay. That's fantastic. Right answers. Marion Somerset Webb, thank you very much for coming to the Bio Perspective podcast and for making this happen. And best of luck and wish you the best with your puppy. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Marion. Thanks, Juan. <laughs>